are listening to DevOps and Docker Talk, and I'm your host, Brett Fisher. I'm a DevOps dude, a course creator, and an open source maintainer in the world of container and cloud native DevOps. These episodes are edited down audio-only versions of my YouTube live show that you can join every Thursday at brett.live. This podcast is made possible by my Patreon members. I'd like to thank all of you patrons for your continued support. It means a lot. Your podcast player should have the show notes for this episode, including links to the original show on YouTube, topics or tools we might discuss, how to support this show with Patreon, and links to get discount coupons on all my courses. You can always get those notes and links at brettfisher.com. In this episode, I'm joined by Rosemary Wang, a developer advocate at HashiCorp. She recently finished a Manning book titled Infrastructure as Code, Patterns and Practices. And this show was really about us digging into those topics. We talked about how Infrastructure as Code, or IAC, fits into developers, DevOps, and GitOps, and how you get started in IAC. And also some of the important patterns like controlling versioning in your IAC, testing, and even managing cost in your code for infrastructure. Rosemary previously worked at ThoughtWorks, a well-known thought-leading software consulting company before HashiCorp. I found it interesting to hear her experiences of how to learn from senior engineering, how pairing and other types of mentorship will help, and how we're all still trying to get better at this thing called software. It was a fun discussion, and I'm looking forward to reading her book and getting some new ideas on infrastructure as code patterns. So please enjoy this conversation with Rosemary Wang. My name is Brett. This is my show. So let's get to it. On the show today, I'm very excited. I've never even asked where you are in the world, but Rosemary Wang of HashiCorp. Hi, everyone. I'm based out of the New York metro area, so oh. East Coast US. Nice. Well, I'm down in Virginia, so not too far apart. We've got a lot of excellent tech people on the East Coast, so I don't know what it is. I get a lot of guests from the East Coast. I don't know why, but thanks for being oh, here. Maybe we just like talking about tech, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Thinking the East more Coast people tech. maybe want to talk about it. Yeah, exactly. East Coast Tech. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for being here. You have a book and we, we're going to talk about the book today. We're going to talk about, I'm sure we're going to get into something HashiCorp at some point. We just had actually some other HashiCorp people on the show and uh, talking about Nomad and we're probably due for other stuff like Vault and whatnot. So maybe you can help me get some contacts there later. We'll talk. But you have a, you have a book, Patterns and Practices for Infrastructure as Code. And just came out this year, right? It did. It did. It's been an early access program since I believe last year, which has been, you know, it's been a journey, but it is finally, I guess you could say done. All the chapters are out and you can still find it on early access, but all the chapters are available. Hopefully we'll be in publication soon. Nice. In print. So do you have that giant box of like printed books that you can now hand out to family and friends and sign it? conferences if you had a real one in the world? <laughs> not yet. Not yet. I'm glad I don't have it yet because I don't know if I'd have space to put it everywhere. I'm pretty <laughs> sure it's, you know, it's a lot of books to keep yeah. around. So I'm glad I don't have it yet. But uh, I think it's nice just to have it in its entire form uh, in ebook at least. So I do actually right. have it on my on my e-reader. So I, I like right. that part. <laughs> right. Your own book right there in front of you. Um, I've never taken the challenge of writing a book because I'm not, I'm too scared. I'm too scared of the process. So I, I applaud you like, well done, you, you finished. I think that's probably the hardest, that would be the hardest part for me is to start is exciting, but to actually finish it, get all the reviews back and do all the edits, that's a lot. So 
congrats. Thank you. Okay, so t- tell us a little bit about your background. You work at HashiCorp now, developer advocate, right? Yes, that's correct. And how did you get to HashiCorp and how did this book even come about? So I landed at HashiCorp because I was someone who was using the tools. <laughs> and common theme. I was a, yeah, common theme, common thing. I would say I was a big console fan, actually, like of the tools that someone's going to be a fan of. For some reason, I was a big console fan, but I had background in Terraform and in Vault. So it was a natural fit to be able to come and look at some of the tools and say, like, what, how do we improve? How do people use it? Why, you know, what? What should we focus on? So that was a a great move for me. But before that, I came from ThoughtWorks, a software consultancy. So before that, I was in financial services, working on infrastructure, which is an interesting jump. Like, How do you go from infrastructure, sysadmin work to ThoughtWorks, which is really well known for software development and, and really being thought leaders around developing software. And the answer is I was struggling to break into the industry, right? Because when you're a sysadmin or your infrastructure or operations person working oriented in the data center, you don't really have a good sense of what real software development is like or really how to develop sustainable um, and maintainable software. And so I said, I will challenge myself and learn. So there came my like four year journey to attempt to learn to be a better software developer and finding that I am still an awful software developer. (laughs) I learned, I know a little bit more than I did before. So that's good. Yeah, that's really cool. We were talking a little bit about the show about like mentors, the the people that we would call through our career. I've got a little gray, so I've had a few years of career and like those people really stick with you. And I always appreciate it when I sort of find gems in, you know, awesome people that want to help and that also make you rethink all of your assumptions. <laughs> so it's always a good reminder that you thought you figured it out and you haven't. So definitely not. I think the first time I paired with, and there was nothing wrong with it, but the first time I paired with a senior Java developer, I pretty much cried because my whole, like everything I thought I knew about coding and, and coding in a way that someone else would read it was completely blown out of the water. I was like, mm. oh my goodness, it's like an existential crisis of sorts. <laughs> what am I even doing here? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I've definitely had those moments too, especially when I'm, I like to do lunch and learns. That's kind of been like, if there's a theme of my career, it's like, okay, let's all figure out how to learn together, you know, with my team. Let's all share our learnings with each other, make deliberate attempts to try to educate each other. And I usually, because I'm used to starting that, I'm used to sort of being in the teacher role. And then it never fails that there's someone who just comes out of nowhere that surprises me and comes in with a lunch and learn. I'm thinking, okay, why aren't you in charge? That's amazing what, what you just showed us. So that's a good way to sort of find the people that are going to influence you and change your career. So who is to blame for this book? Was it your idea or did someone say, you should write a book? <laughs> I ha- have only myself to blame, Okay, <laughs> um, which is fair enough. But actually a couple of folks reached out to me about books over the years. And I just never felt like I had anything to contribute in terms of the book content, right? Or a book as a form of media. Uh, I was always someone who favored blogs, favored doing video. I really liked doing sort of short segmented code snippets because that was the way I learned, right? But it was interesting. I got some feedback from some folks I was working with and they said, you know, I wish you took everything that you taught me while we were pairing together over these six (laughs) to seven months and put it in a book because then I could just refer back to the book instead of remembering what you told me or, or trying to find sound bites or trying to discover like where you put this on this wiki, internal wiki. Mm-hmm. I said, you know, 
that's a fair assessment. I guess that would be a reason to write the book or a book. And it turns out infrastructure as code was one of the uh, topics that I had a lot to say. So I decided, you know what, when someone and when Manning reached out to me to say, you know, hey, are you interested in writing a book about infrastructure as code? You talk a lot about it. I was like, you know, if I'm going to talk about talk more about a topic I already like, I might as well just write the whole book on it. Yeah, nice. And so I guess pre-COVID, you were conference talks. Have you been doing virtual conferences these last couple of years? I have been doing virtual conferences. I find them really fun. Yeah. I uh, It's great. I mean, I like going to conferences and seeing people. It's fantastic. But I will say, interacting with folks in the chat are a lot of fun. You get a lot of great commentary real time. And that's something I wasn't necessarily getting in conference in True. person. You got it on the hallway track, but not necessarily... Right live as you are interacting with someone else or, or on the chat. So uh, I do true. appreciate the virtual. The, the, it's a lot less hassle too. <laughs> I don't have to, I don't have to spend thousands of dollars to fly to a place and pay to get in a, in a building and all that. Yeah. But I never thought about that too, is, as you know, you, you had that line of questions. If you're lucky enough to get a topic that people are interested in, because you know, you're always interested in your own topic, but whether other people are, it's, it's always a question. And that line that you get at the end of the talk where everyone's sort of asking questions of, in the, of the room, it's, it's very like one person at a time you put on the spot, you have an answer, but yeah, the chat's way better. And of course it was all horrible three years ago, but I think the virtual conferences are starting to figure it out. So maybe it doesn't suck as much. Do you have any upcoming talks? Any Anything that you, you've you got in the works besides the book now that you've finished the book? Yeah. So I have a talk today on demand for Conf42 Cloud Native. It's a developer's introduction to Service Mesh. So I do stuff outside of infrastructure's code. One of those things involves Service Mesh, but it's for if you're a developer and you're trying to understand what Service Mesh is, it's an introduction to it. There's also a couple other conferences that I have. I'll be at, unfortunately, I won't be in person at KubeCon EU. Yeah, you'll find me on a lot of different things, but yeah, an upcoming one is I'll be at GitOps Days. We talk about GitOps a lot on this show. It's one of those topics where... It, it's become my hammer. Everything looks like a nail for the GitOps hammer. I want to just GitOps everything. We end up with infrastructure people on this show that like HashiCorp, they have their own product. And I'm always sort of trying to imply on the show that you should really make that GitOps. Like that tool needs to be, that tool you're having that I, is a great U, UI, but I need to have that saved to a repo somewhere in version. Can you just make that the back end of your product, please? Because I, I feel like we're, we, we're really great at making GUI tools and we're really great. And we're getting pretty good at making command line tools. But we're not so great at expecting those command line tools to be automated and then to provide the automation details of how that all has to work with GitOps. And so that's a key topic around here. We can You can just come back on the show. We'll talk about GitOps for yeah, 60 minutes. We should definitely talk about it because that was actually my introduction. The reason why I ended up doing infrastructure as code in the first place was because um, in financial services and I guess you would say higher risk environments or highly regulated environments, you can only make changes during certain windows. Mm. And I was really tired of spending eight hours on my weekend copying and pasting into a GUI. And at yeah. that point, I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. There has to be a better way. And that was my first sort of entrance into infrastructure as code. But the GUI was so painful because copying and pasting from a spreadsheet was not my idea of fun. Right. Right. Or making sure you click those things in the right order. Make sure you click this, then that, then this, then that. Yeah. So many years of that gone by. In fact, I think it's now where if that process, if that sort of, we'll label it a DevOps process and we can discuss whether what DevOps is and isn't, which is a, a standard topic on the show as well. If it's not already automated, it irks me that it's not automated. I feel like like these last few years, the CI, the automation platforms have really started to mature. I'm a big GitHub Actions fan. And so I tried to do that first for everything. 
And I feel like we're getting, we're, we're on the precipice, I feel like possibly of a world where we're really becoming just automation experts, which I think was really one of the big goals to begin with, with DevOps. And we're, we, we stopped focusing on a tool and we're really more about, well, let's just automate that tool so it doesn't matter. Like maybe I'm yeah. using this tool or that tool, but does it matter if I'm automating it? it it's the robots. Yeah. Uh, does your book talk about GitOps at all? How do you introduce it in the book? How do you explain it to people? Yeah, so there is a section. Some folks are like, maybe it could be a whole chapter. I was like, we're, this is getting, it's going to get a little complicated. You would dedicate a whole book to GitOps in yeah. general. But the way I frame it is that GitOps is a much, I would say, much more disciplined form of infrastructure as code in a lot of ways. The, the key difference that I've identified with GitOps in particular is this ability to continuously deploy. And that is something, and we can talk about continuous deployment in a couple different ways, but at least after the point of you pre-testing everything, testing, et cetera, you're continuously deploying this change to reconcile drift or apply changes to infrastructure. And that part is, I think, more opinionated than what someone would say infrastructure as code is, right? So I wanted to introduce it into the book because I took such an opinionated stance on practices for infrastructure as code. For example, version control. Like you could do infrastructure as code questionably without some form of a version control system. Mm. But to be really opinionated and to make the most of it, you do want a version control system. And every operation you do, you should be doing through version control. In general, that process, I felt like I was already so opinionated that I had to introduce GitOps as a form of sort of the extra step after that, which is the highly automated portion of it. There are some folks who disagreed, and it's fair because most of what people talk about in the GitOps space is oriented with Kubernetes, right? Because yeah. Kubernetes has the controllers, they have that automated continuous deployment system or that continuous deployment controller there for you. So I do see there's like sort of this subset in between of infrastructure code and GitOps of just generally event-driven automation. So Maybe you don't have a controller that perfectly monitors state and does all the reconciliation for you, but some event will maybe drive infrastructure's code and you have that intermediate step before you go to a full GitOps model. Mm. Yeah, I love it. I like that description around uh, a more formal, disciplined infrastructure's code because, yeah, there's actually a question kind of related to that asking, what are the prerequisites to learning or stepping into infrastructure as code? I do get this question around people sort of stepping into DevOps a lot and they're really unsure of what they're expected to know before they can even begin. Yeah, this is where it's it's kind of dependent on the platforms too. And most people who learn infrastructure as code, it's very difficult to do this without having some target platform in mind. And so mm. usually my my prerequisite is at least know one cloud provider or, or infrastructure provider. It helps kind of ground the practice because at least in terms of the prerequisite itself, Knowing at least one will help you understand how to interact with it. It also helps to use a cloud provider because one of the main prerequisites to infrastructure as code is having an API for the infrastructure that you want to configure. Not all infrastructure has a solid API for you to use. I came from networking, right? And not all yeah. network switches have amazing APIs. So right. um, big prerequisite to, to choose either a cloud provider or an infrastructure provider with a really good API. And the second is find you know, one tool. You don't have to know programming language. I think that was the one thing that some folks mentioned to me. They're like, oh my goodness, I have to know programming languages. And the answer is probably not. There are enough infrastructure as code tools out there with domain specific languages that you don't have to know full programming. You just have to know a bit of the syntax. And so if you know those two minimal things, you can start learning the practices, right? Because infrastructure as code is not just the tools themselves. 
they're really about patterns and practices. Then you first start. So what do you do to write it? And so then you learn those, but based on those prerequisites, and then what do you do with your team? And then what do you do within your organization? So as you scale infrastructure's code, it's all of those patterns of practices you have to combine together. Hmm. Nice. I think that there's, there's always that tough spot of people figuring out, am I good in, do I know enough to get a DevOps job? Right. Because we've, I feel like we've definitely got more people coming into DevOps roles than leaving DevOps roles. There's not a whole lot yet that we have after DevOps, which I, I still feel like. I mean, SREs are still following DevOps ideals. And someday I'm going to make that amazing DevOps course where there's zero tools and it's just about like patterns and practices of DevOps and it's, and it's no code that that's, I think we were talking earlier about like, how do you make, write a book that doesn't keep having to be edited, doesn't have to be edited. And it's like, well, don't write any code. Maybe then, maybe then just ideas will last longer than the code itself. So people that are coming into that, they do have a lot of these questions around, you know, I think, do, do I need to know code is one of the most common ones. I keep telling people like I came from an ops background. I happened to know coding just because it was a hobby, but people weren't paying me to code. And I came into it from that ops background. And I would say it was a click ops background, you know, the windows worlds of infrastructure. And I see so many, I mean, I see people every day that are in DevOps that they may know some coding, but they don't code on a daily basis. They maybe can yeah. read some code, right? They maybe can edit a line or two, but a lot of their job is not about writing tools from scratch. We do see those at talks, right? If we all go to an O'Reilly conference or a Google conference, there are going to be those amazing unicorns that are, they are a developer first. Now they're an ops developer and they call themselves DevOps, but they write all their own tools in Golang and it's amazing, but there's, that's not, I don't think that's like the normal average person in that. And, and so it's good to hear you talk about, like, you don't really actually need to have all that to begin. Like you can always be better. Yeah. So in your book, when you talk about patterns, do you have some like big heavy hitters that you feel you have the elevator pitch tips, like hot takes on patterns? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of the one, I think that some of the most controversial ones are the ones that um, are actually borrowed from software design patterns. So rather than reinvent the language around it, right? You know, how do you think about using the existing language in software development and framing it for infrastructure as code? So the two most controversial chapters, I think, has been on the patterns between module for structuring infrastructure as code in configurations or modules and then dependency management. So those are pretty much the interpretations from software design. So the heavy hitters are something like, how do you use a singleton? What do you think of when you use a composite? And all of these things don't really make sense if you're coming from an infrastructure space in right. the infrastructure space, but if you're coming from the software space, they're terms that you may or may not be as familiar with from a design patterns view. And those are all very opinionated because mm. not everybody, some people really want to put everything in a singleton, right? So in some infrastructures code, you were talking about this for domain specific languages, it's easy to just put all your resources in a singleton and be done, right? But over time, it becomes very difficult to manage. So what do you think of building factories so other people can self-service subsets of infrastructure? What do you think about, you know, dependency inversion or dependency injection for dependencies to make sure that if you're changing your network, you're not going to affect anything downstream like your servers or your serverless functions that you've mm -hmm. decided to run on the network. So a lot of those happen to be pretty opinionated. Those happen to be the big heavy hitters. The other one that the other two, I think two or three topics that I hear the most about testing. I take a very opinionated set of practices and patterns on infrastructures code testing. So for the folks who asked if testing is in the book, yes, it's in the book. I have my own opinions about how to do it. There's uh, also some suggestions on security and compliance, also quite opinionated, and cost, which is 
I would say a fairly, I think it's a controversial topic for folks because cost is really dependent on your environment. Mm. But I do have some general practices for cost, like tagging, doing things on demand, scheduling, auto scaling, et cetera. So there's some recommendations there. Yeah, it's funny, the, the costing topic, I feel like, especially in large organizations, I feel like it's a very advanced topic uh, that you don't see people early on, younger infrastructure teams or younger DevOps teams. Cost, it's just a black, it's a number with, there's nothing, it's opaque. <laughs> there's, you yeah. can't see, you just know, this is how much we cost. Sorry, yep. we made all your stuff work. That's what it costs to make it work. And I, I only find I, most of the teams I work with, that's kind of how they approach budgeting. And they don't look at infrastructure as a, a way to bring visibility to what our cost is and where all of our costs are. And of course, I need to have an entire show on that. Probably bring on the Duckbill Group, someone who really focuses on cost in AWS. But I love that you talked, let me go back to something earlier. You talked about pick a cloud and learn it. And it is one of the sort of the staples that I talk a lot about with when I'm advising teams is you can't automate what you don't know yet how to do. So you really don't come into the DevOps automation world without having the understanding of what it was like before then. It's almost like you need to do this the hard way before yeah. you can automate it. And I, I do see people that come into teams a lot. They're new to the team. The team is not new. They are new to DevOps in general and infrastructure, managing infrastructure. And then they struggle because they are immediately are thrown into a world that's fully automated, already GitOps, and they don't yet know the APIs. They don't yet know the infrastructure itself. Is this just a learning process or is there something we, do you know if there's something we can do in the teams to help the new DevOps person on board? Is that something you've had to deal with in, the, in your past? Yeah. So team norming is, is a big part of actually making an infrastructure team work really well, but also there's a balance to this, right? Having good documentation. And as much as we'd like to say code is the documentation, the reality is nothing beats documentation of certain larger, higher level processes that you might have. So if you have specific processes around change management, which yes, we all complain because it's a manual step and a manual approval. Yeah. But the reality is we still have some of those for production, right? Outlining what that process is, what is the definition of, outlining what a definition of good is, right? It's super helpful pairing with that person. And I think most important is investing uh, in either course or uh, separate learning for that person on a target platform, on a cloud provider. It's tough when you don't have even the right terms or the right information to do your best when you're trying to make changes to infrastructure platforms or, or even applications in general. You don't want to bring down something, but in order to do that, you need to have some kind of foundational knowledge. So early investment into giving some of the opportunity to go to courses, take a course or find some kind of learning outside of their day to day is very helpful for me. The very first thing that that helped me when I was going to networking was my manager sent me to a CCNA course. Did I take the exam? No, but CCNA is the Cisco networking exam, but it was a good way to just be like, okay, you're dedicating two weeks as a crash course to understanding what basic networking is, how you're going to configure a switch, what you're going to do. So that way, when you come in, you at least have a base level knowledge, you know what the terms are, you understand how to configure it. And I think that was a really great investment from the companies, from the company side. It went a lot faster after that because I knew what to do. Mm. And uh, yeah, so making that early investment is great. I'm sure of that. Pairing, pairing has been fantastic. And uh, documentation, I think those are the two main ones. There's a few things that make me sadder than someone pulling up a repo in GitHub or Bitbucket, and then the readme is blank. 
<laughs> but that happens so much. And I, I feel like in enterprise IT, especially where they're moving, they all have the wikis and the SharePoints and all these other things, confluences. And, but then they make their, they work. I, th I feel like this is a big anti-pattern that I, I want to soapbox for a moment because, you know, we create documentation elsewhere, but we don't enable people in the tool they work in, the tool they live in, which is nowadays the place you're storing your code. And they're adding infrastructure repos, they're doing all this stuff, and then there's all these blank readmes. Or the readmes yep. is incredibly, it, it, it only would make sense to the people in the team, no one out of the team. You see this trend? Yeah. <laughs> this empty I see it trend? a lot. Yeah. I see it a lot. And it's frustrating because it's, you know, anybody who's looking for information, they, they, you want it close to the code. First of all, if you're the person updating the information, you're never going to update something that's outside of the code. Right. It's like an almost the extra step of going to a Confluence yeah. or internal wiki and updating it separately. Keeping it close to the code is, incentivizes you to update it. It also helps you if you decide to automate some of it because maybe you need to document inputs, outputs, or something specific. At least you can automate it next to the code. You're not um, subject to some other API or some other external service that you have to update after that. But the other frustrating thing is I see a lot of people who will come to sometimes even demos. And I was... I will acknowledge I'm not perfect. I was like this in my early developer advocate days too, you know, where the readme was pretty vague. Someone couldn't really run through it themselves. And over time, what was actually kind of karma was that I would come back to my own demo because I need to reuse it for something. and I didn't even know how to run it. That was the point in time where I realized that if you put all the information someone needs, the dependencies, as much clear information as you can about how you run it, you will come, you yourself will come back to your own code and be able to run it successfully in less time than let's say reverse engineering it for three days. So yeah. I learned that lesson the hard way. So highly recommend it. Yeah. If you work in this field long enough, you're definitely going to run into your stuff later that you wrote that you don't remember writing. I don't know how long it takes. There's probably someone's law around how long does it take in your career before you, you find code, you're looking at it and going, what is this? And you realize, oh, this is me. <laughs> and it, it might just be on the internet, some random place, if you're lucky and you write something that's open source. So I'm glad that I'm not the only one seeing that trend. And I love the idea of keeping it close to the code because I think, I feel like it's also top-down leadership, like respecting documentation as much as the code or the infrastructure's code itself. And this last couple of years, I've been on a journey to get everyone linting, automated linting on every commit. And I don't know if you've seen these new tools, super linter, mega linter, they're like bundling all the linters. And I'm on this like road show of the internet of, let me see if we can, let me see if we can lint that for you automatically. And then eventually enforce that as part of the PR process. And so they can't just ignore linting, but there, we don't yet have one that says, okay, your number of documentation lines and markdown in this per two code, you have 10,000 lines of code and you have 50 lines of markdown and comments. Your ratio is off. And we will fail this PR. Like I haven't seen that yet, but I feel like th there's something around that idea that needs to happen. I don't know if you have influence at maybe one of these great software companies that makes good open source, but like something that could just tell us, hey, look, your documentation is kind of kind of sucking on this PR. Like instead of someone having to manually review, and then we don't all like to critique each other always. So I can I sometimes see resistance in teams where people don't want to pressure someone to do better documentation or more documentation, but. I don't know if you've seen like anything like that. Quality. Maybe it already exists. Yeah. It's like code quality, but for documentation almost, you know, it's mm. like, or what is the test coverage, right? Test coverage metrics for documentation. Right. <laughs> That'd be kind of nice. No one's done that. Yet. I will say one of the nice parts, and, and this is just, it's not, it's because it, it is one of the things that's top of my head. And 
it's so convenient and I just really liked it. But when you do something in Terraform, for example, and you bring this module to the Terraform registry, it actually does automatic documentation for you. Mm-hmm. So it pulls in whatever readme so you can add your extra information about what you know what you want that module to do, but it automatically documents inputs, outputs, which I'm like, more auto-documentation, please. Like, if that's possible <laughs> for well-established things, like even linting, right? If there was a way that you could take those linting rules and express it, you know, before you, as you pointed out, express what kind of documentation you need, knowing the standard of the kind of code that you have to write, that would be super helpful. I guess that's where Swagger, right, is supposed to, you know, open API specs, Swagger docs, we're supposed to help with APIs, for example. Well, and I feel like we're not too far from that. I haven't really seen much of the automation of that yet, but I mean, I do have CodePilot turned on. I always want to call it CodePilot. I feel like they could have had a better name. Uh, Copilot, we're talking about GitHub Copilot, which is an AI generation engine essentially and i use it i was the first one that well i was trying to be one of the first people that would misuse it for devops and say like what if i wrote the entire markdown file one line at a time from a robot and it actually is not horrible i find myself writing more documentation because every time if you have i don't know if you've done this with vs code yet but if you're in vs code and you have copilot turned on and you're in markdown or you're in a comment and you hit return it wants to give you more text. So it will suggest a line that may be total BS, <laughs> or it might be genius. And you're like, yes, I, I should put that in here. Hit tab, it's done. I now look better with my documentation, even though I didn't write it. So I feel like we're accidentally there maybe, but yeah. we, yeah, you're right. We could have some bots that are saying, would you like this documentation that I just made for you? Would you like me to add this to your PR? That would be great. Yeah, that, that would be really I nice. We, I think we all need more bots that help keep us on the rails a little yeah, exactly. bit. So, okay, I know that your book is not focused on tools necessarily. I mean, it does, and the titles say Python and Terraform, but I have some questions here. What made you write about it and what differs from your book from other infrastructure as code books? So th- the competition question, how are you to the competition? Uh, so I I wrote it because I was inspired by a, a lot of folks that I was working with and, and they were like, we want to hear this or we want to come back and reference it. And at some point I would be talking to them in a meeting and I would have these like great trains of thoughts. And I'm like, wow, I should write it down. And I never did. And then I forgot about them. And so synthesizing this and aggregating it all into a book has been really helpful because I'll go back and reference how I've synthesized it. It's forced me to think about these ideas more cohesively and and tell a story about it, right? So in terms of what differs, there are a number of IEC books out there that, and they're fantastic. You can use them to cross-reference as well as get a better sense of other perspectives in IAC. A lot of IAC books are tool-specific. So if you're using something like CloudFormation or Terraform or something else, they're books that are focused on that tool. So it will teach you from getting started all the way to how do you think about applying it across an organization. I didn't really want to make a tool-specific book because tools change, but also a lot of the times these patterns and practices I found myself doing across a lot of tools. So I try to, I show the examples in Python predominantly rendering back to Terraform actually for so you can run them yourself and create these resources and actually um, do this live if you wanted to, but they are really patterns oriented. They're not as much mm-hmm. tools that Terraform's at. Now, another book that is actually infrastructure as code patterns, sort of infrastructure as code patterns approach Shout out to Keith Morris. The the first edition was predominantly uh, about server configuration. Fantastic book. It helped me understand how to configure servers, how to think about infrastructure's code in the configuration management space. Mm -hmm. The second edition does reiterate over infrastructure's code, does talk about patterns and does talk about a 
couple different opinionated approaches. So overall, the main difference about this book was that I took what I learned end to end from a practical view and tried to bring it up to theoretical to more mm. approach. And so the result is that you're getting something all the way from you started writing infrastructure as code, you started using it, but then what do you do after that? So we go all the way to how you deal with failure and rolling forward. How do you think about continuous delivery or deployment, which is a pretty controversial topic in infrastructure as code in general. Yeah. And it's a very widely disagreed upon and discussed topic in general, no matter where it is. And then all the way into cost, which uh, I think is a pretty unique chapter, but I felt like it was worth including because there are a lot of ways that you can mitigate or manage costs through infrastructure as code. And we don't really talk about that very clearly. Yeah. I feel like as much like everything else, I feel like there's the more I learn about infrastructure as code, not just necessarily the tools, like you're talking about, like the patterns, the different approaches teams take, because it is, there's like so much variety. It's rare for me to see two teams that do anything in the automation and DevOps space the same. So we have major themes. I feel like we all kind of generally agree, but when it comes to implementation or to team specific workflows, it gets highly culture unique. And to see more of these examples, uh, I think is a, you can't just read one of these books and get everything you're going to need for even how your team might need to do it. Because I think people are always wanting very specific patterns and implementations so that they can just do it and be done. But the reality is that I see with DevOps teams that are really focused on automation, the things you do today are the things you're going to keep. You're just repeating and rinse and repeating all of this these patterns and these practices, it just might, the tool might change. I might not be using Jenkins anymore. I might be using GitHub Actions or, you know, other automation tool, Azure, DevOps, whatever the, the buzzwords yeah. are of the day, but the principles are still staying the same. I feel like the change for me and the people that I consult with really for the last decade has been that the tools might've changed slightly, but it's more of, we have now all approached at this from a, an automation first. And so. If I filled my 40 hour a week with a bunch of clicky, clicky type these things over and over again, and that whole idea of the word toil, I feel like that's the thing that I feel like has been beat into a lot of us. It's like if detect toil early and find a way to avoid it. Do you talk about that at all in the book? I mean, this kind of gets a little bit more in SRE because I, I sometimes find that people don't quite understand how to know when they should be doing something themselves. And when the, you and I might walk into a room and go, why are you doing that manually? <laughs> And because we clearly yeah. see it, right? But they yeah. maybe don't. Yeah, I talk about it in the beginning in terms of benefits, right? Because one of the things that you don't realize when you're comparing something manually is that there's actually a cost to it over time. Um, it may seem like you don't expend too much time or energy to start, right? Maybe you're like, let me just do one or two things manually, great. But it adds up over time because if something goes wrong, thanks to the manual change, you actually spend a lot more time debugging, resolving, troubleshooting, reverse engineering, and mm. bringing back the system because of that. So I don't have the chart on me, unfortunately, but there's a chart that I have that, you know, there's an, like an initial effort and then you'll watch it kind of go really high, right? Over time, if there's something disastrous that's happened, right? So it's not all the time that it, you know, there is something worst case scenario that happens in automation it, or in lack of automation, but there are the times in which something goes horribly awry and you end up spending three weeks trying to recover a system because of mm. it, because of a, maybe a manual change that you didn't either completely document or you have to do really large scale changes across a huge amount of your infrastructure footprint, for right. example. And then you compare that to infrastructure's code or automation in general, you're going to have an initial investment in terms of time and effort. 
there's no way around it. You're going to spend a little bit more time doing some initial work to automate and to reproduce it, to test it, to make sure it's stable. But over time, as you repeat that automation, that effort decreases, right? And if something does go horribly awry, you at least have this, hopefully, you've followed a, a, a bit of the principle of immutability and you're able to recreate the infrastructure or the resources right. that you need with lower effort. So that's where I think the the struggle is. A lot of people ask about, what about me? Sometimes you can't avoid a manual change, but when you can invest in the initial automation effort and surprisingly over time, the effort continues to decrease. Yeah, you actually brought up a good point there, a slightly different conversation around those of us that come from ops backgrounds, like the last few decades has been mostly about backup and restore and less about recreate, like less focus on recreate. And I almost feel like that's another t-shirt idea is like uh, DevOps is recreate, not restore. Obviously you have persistent data and that has to be restored because it's unique. But for so much of our jobs, those people that are on the infrastructure side of this conversation, so much of our jobs is largely about creating things that should be recreatable and that recreation should be automated. But we've been so tied to tools, like you said, that don't have APIs, the infrastructure in the data center that has to, that APIs are really just a shell. You get a shell or you get some sort of remote PowerShell port on windows or something. And you struggle with that because you've been classically trained to think about, okay, I created something. Now I'm going to back it up so that I can restore it when it goes bad, rather than there's nothing in here. I can't recreate from infrastructure's code or from automated tooling or from manual tooling. There's nothing I can't recreate. And that's going to be our method rather than restore. Because that's a hard habit really to change, I think, in your head is to say, okay, I, what if I didn't have a, a way to backup and restore? Like just imagine a world without backup tools, almost like tying people's hands to say, yeah. you can't, you're not going to be able to restore this. You're going to have to recreate it from something, something else. Yeah. It's surprisingly a lot of disaster, sort of like the worst case disaster scenario, right? You cannot just backup and restore because maybe your backup's corrupt and you just can't do it anymore. Like there's no way to, you can't really resolve that, right? The only possibility that you can do is recreate it. And when you don't have the practice of recreating, you often create an environment that is either non-performant or still doesn't work. So the recreation is yeah. like practice. You're just consistently practicing the creation of infrastructure all the time. So it, it works, you know, for folks who even in the worst case scenario, they can't restore the backup because something has gone really, really wrong. At least they're able to recreate some portion of the infrastructure or some portion of the system and allow users to continue to use it. Yeah, very cool. I have a very specific question. Hopefully you have the answer. Sorry, Terraform Cloud versus Terraform. Yeah. Sure. So Terraform has open source and then there's Terraform Cloud. So Terraform open source, you can download to your laptop, run, you know, create some Terraform configuration files to build your infrastructure, run Terraform apply, and it creates your infrastructure. But that doesn't really scale across your team members. It doesn't necessarily scale across your organization. Oftentimes when you start using Terraform open source and you need to share it as with the infrastructure's code practices and right. patterns that you would typically want to communicate and enable to the rest of your team, it doesn't work to do it locally, right? It's this joke of like, it works locally on my laptop, but it doesn't work with someone else running it. You encounter conflicts in infrastructure changes, et cetera. So the idea is that there's a paid offering called Terraform Cloud. It is a cloud uh, offering. What this does is that it helps you collaborate with your team. So you can connect something like a 
Terraform Cloud Workspace to version control. And what that will do is anytime you push to version control, anyone, in fact, pushes to that repository, Terraform Cloud will run and apply the changes to Terraform. So you can think of it as partly a build system focused specifically on Terraform, running Terraform, right. making sure that you can collaborate on it across multiple people and different parts of your organization. Yeah. So it's almost like Terraform++. Plus Plus. Yes, Terraform++. <laughs> plus plus. Now, it's not to say you can't build something like a pipeline and get a workflow in GitHub Actions and achieve a similar workflow, right? You can do that, but a lot of people don't necessarily want to. Out of the box, they want to just be able to turn on, you know, Terraform Cloud and just run Terraform and then share it with their team. That's right. really all they want. Right. When they maybe don't have an existing automation platform that they could build all this functionality in. Plus, I, I mean, personally, I use Terraform Cloud and... The GUI is very hyper-focused on the typical Terraform workflow as opposed to something you might do in GitHub Actions, which it's nice because it's centralized automation, but it's very generic. So it's going to be harder for you to put all that, highlight the important information about that particular stuff. I mean, I think even at, at GitHub Universe conference, you know, Pashi shows up and someone's doing a demo on Terraform in GitHub Actions or something like that. But I think you could even do that stuff a little bit with Terraform Cloud in a way, or having Terraform Cloud coming back into GitHub PRs or something like that. But I do like Cloud. So for those of you, you asking, check it out, because I think it does have like a free tier, I feel like. It yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. So you can, you get remote runs, you get an organization with the remote runs, right? So they run one at a time, but per workspace, but you get it, you can just get it for free. You get a uh, remote state, for example. So part of the trick with Terraform is that you can do something called local state, which means no one knows what kind of infrastructure you've spun up. So the idea stealth, is that you want to ops. share state. Yeah, yeah exactly. You want to share state. So what it will do is give you remote state. It will also give you the remote runs as well. So you can run them one at a time. You can't run them in parallel unless you're on the paid tier, but mm. the free tier, you can pretty much, you know, and up to five people. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Well, how do they get the book? Can yeah. they can buy it where books are sold? Is that, I think that's the thing to say yeah. nowadays. You can buy the book. Yeah, where books are yeah, sold. exactly. It's on Manning right now, but you know, eventually on its publication date, it will be wherever books are sold. So for now, as long as it is through the early access program and predating the publication date, which I believe someone mentioned was July, 2022, you will have to get it through Manning. But then after that, you can get it through book, any book. Oh, okay. That, mm -hmm. So it's probably, I'm going to guess they got it like on Amazon and pre-order it or something like that. Or yeah. yeah, very exciting. Well, congrats on that. I can only imagine the level of effort. I, I feel like there's never any end. You just have to decide someday that you're done. There's never, like, when can you stop? There's oh, no limit. No. Especially when it's I an realized, e Yeah, I know. I realized two days ago that I forgot something in the book and I was like, well, I guess it's not the most critical thing, but it would be kind of nice if I had it. I was like, nope, too late. I, I can't. I have to just stop at that point. <laughs> It was about uh, code coverage, test coverage, actually. So that was. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that, that second edition, right? That's what I was talking to you about this before the show. When's the second edition coming out? You haven't even shipped the first edition yet. So, yeah. And so buy the book where books are sold. I'm trying to remember that's uh, I've been listening to a lot of other podcasts lately and authors and they, that's what they always say. Buy it at your favorite bookstore. Bookstore. Are we still calling them bookstores? I don't know that there's any, maybe a Barnes and Noble somewhere. I have a local one near me that I really like. Now, if you want any tech books, you have to tell them very specifically and they'll right. have to order it for you. But there are, there, are, there are some local bookstores still around. So I guess the statement still applies. Yeah. Or your local library, which does have books. They, they do have books. They maybe don't buy every tech book that comes out, but they probably have like TCP IP Unleashed Edition 
you know, two from 1998, and you could read that because that's probably the book I learned TCP on. And so, and by the way, your tip on CCNA, I want to, I just want to, like, thank you, thank you. I honestly feel like there is a staple. Like certifications are a thing, and yeah, they're not always the most perfect thing. They don't solve all the problems, obviously. But I feel like learning one cloud, like you talked about that, I feel like that's a very good theme. And that's something that I do recommend to people. Like, just pick one. Pick the one that either your job currently uses or the job you're aspiring for might use. If you don't have any opinions, adopt AWS by default, just because that's yeah. higher percentage chance that you'll end up using it. But you do that. And I feel like this, I started my career in the 90s you know, as a sysadmin. And then I got to do networking for a few years on a large medical company. So I went and did that. I did the CCNA. I didn't go down the whole rabbit hole of CCIE and like becoming legendary status or anything, but I did that very same thing you did. And I feel like that set my career up so well. That, I mean, almost like a basic software development course, any course, a cloud course, and then a networking course that gets me to CCNA. I feel like those are like the recipe for a healthy DevOps engineer and career, I feel like. So I'm glad you mentioned that because I don't mention it enough. Yeah, I, I would say it was unique. I wouldn't have thought about it. I mean, I was interested in networking, but I wouldn't have thought about it in that depth. But it's come in handy a lot more mm. than I thought. I never thought that I'd be sitting on a Kubernetes cluster and debugging MTU frame, MTU jumbo right. frames. Never thought that. And if it wasn't right. for having some networking knowledge and understanding MTU frame size, I feel like I probably would have sat there like spinning my wheels you know, trying to a figure out what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, or never figured it out. Right. And it's coming handy more than I care to admit. And I highly recommend for the, even if not a CCNA, choose something that is network oriented, choose a networking right. course, right. At the very least. Right. A network plus, or yeah, some sort of maybe not certification focus, but definitely how does networking work? And I mean, we've all, hopefully we've all at this point, everyone in some level of IT has all had to do that TCP IP subnetting and IP4. So at some point in a career, I feel like that was a part of everyone's like, whether it was college or Microsoft certifications or whatever they're doing, like somehow somewhere there's that. But I feel like that larger thing of understanding, like you're saying packet size, how, what's when we get into containers, we learn about VETS and like virtual inter Ethernet interfaces. And that wasn't a thing for containers. That wasn't new. We actually all knew about that before. It's just more way more popular now. And I feel like those fundamentals that you had and I got, like they've served me, I think more than honestly anything else in my career. Because OS has changed, yeah. you know, software development languages change. We get new languages, we get new tools. But TCP IP, I mean, basically the IP world really doesn't change that often. And when it does, it's extremely slow and frustrating. Like 20 years ago when we were all saying IPv6, it's the future. And still many of us, especially in the Western worlds are not on IPv6. <laughs> No. I got IP6 at home now. I'm so excited. I feel like my internet's all new because oh. I finally got it this year. So, You're so I haven't, I even made, I've not made the switch. I'm still stuck on IP before. I'm just like, you know what? We're just, we're keep, we're sticking with it. We're sticking with it. You it know, works. <laughs> it was a really good idea in the seventies and eighties. That's amazing that that still works. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm sure we could chat forever on any, any one of these topics. We could have you back, but uh, we do have to end at some point. So thank you all. So I'm recommending your book for our Kubernetes container book club. And there's of course, a little bit of Kubernetes in there. I will say little, oh. little, little, little tiny bit. So, but it is very much infrastructure oriented. So just right. as a word of warning, there's not right. too much on containers in there, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, and that's good because the containers is just the newest idea. It's the latest idea. And you want that book to 
not be completely outdated in three years, right? So you got to do something. You got to do something on the cutting room floor, as they say. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. It's great to meet you and good luck with the book. I'm so glad we had this conversation. It was great. We'll see you next week. We're live every Thursday. So we'll see you again. Bye, everybody. Bye, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. And I'll see you in the next episode.